This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. 5 p.m. in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Uh, Alex, I think the action today is in the bond market. The bond market certainly seems to be taking a very careful look at what central banks are saying around the world. Equities, I would say, going nowhere in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got CPI coming up later on this week out of the States. We've got, obviously, the big banks reporting numbers. Uh, We've got a whole range of factors uh, coming to play here in Europe. Energy prices muted. Uh, But we're going to need to talk about France in just a moment and figure out what is happening there. But from an equity point of view, nothing doing. Mm -hmm. For bond markets, yields are are pushing high. The U.S. 10-year up by, what is it, nine basis points now? No, I mean, we're 10 now. But I I think this is actually a supply story. Uh, So you're seeing uh, a bull steepener. So you're seeing, uh, excuse me, a bear steepener. So you're seeing some selling in the back end a little stronger than the front end. So yields up on the 10, the 20, and the 30 by 10 basis points. There's a lot of supply that's going to be coming online. And I think that that's part of the story. Which makes sense when you consider that equities are kind of you know going nowhere into the CPI on Thursday. Yeah, European equities rolled over today um, after after a really decent gain. I, we, we basically just went sideways, uh, so nothing really doing there. But as you say, there's some big things coming up. I think markets are just sort of biding their time, waiting to figure out uh, exactly what the read will be from those uh, events. Uh, we've also had um, Airbus out with its full-year delivery data. I just want to bring you that. Full-year delivery is uh, 661. Uh, it's going to continue to ramp up its trajectory. Um, we're hearing from the company's CEO. Gross orders reaching just north of a 1,000. A I think that's pretty much in line mm-hmm. with expectations. But it does take me uh, to France, um, which I think is a story that we, Alex, need to talk about. I, I, I feel as if the strike story, which has been very much kind of front and centre here in the UK, has the potential to shift now to France. The potential for industrial action after we saw uh, Elizabeth Bourne, the, uh, the French Prime Minister, unveiling the long-promised Emmanuel Macron pension reform programme today, uh, I think is going to be growing significantly. We're going to hear from the, uh, the unions a little bit later on. So France is going to raise its minimum retirement age to 64 as of 2030. How are the unions going to respond? What does that mean for France's long-term sort of fiscal trajectory? Well, let's try and get an answer to all of these questions. We're joined on the line by Alan Katz. He is our Paris bureau chief. Uh, He is definitely on top of this story. Alan, let's start off, first of all, with what has been announced this afternoon. Is it in line with expectations? It, it, well, it's in line with the most recent expectations. It's um, less, uh, I guess, less drastic than what Emmanuel Macron originally promised. What he originally promised was a move to 65 and a more abrupt move to that age. And so they've pulled it back by one year, and they've lengthened the amount of time over which they'll sort of gradually raise the age to get there. So they are trying to you know, cut, uh, undercut a bit, at least, some of the opposition that there's been to this increase mm-hmm. in the minimum retirement age. Alan, is it going to be enough? 
Probably not. <laughs> um, you know, it's always the question in France, all sorts of things provoke strikes, right? That's, it's the common reaction is if you don't like something, you go out on the street and you protest. Um, the question becomes how many people will go out on the streets, how unified they'll be, and how long they're willing to uh, to strike over this. Um, I was talking to someone earlier today that I really – I remember walking through the snow and the slush in 1995 when there was a big retirement reform effort that ended up being withdrawn because there were a million people in the street for weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks on end. Um, but since then, most of the t- most of the protests against refi- retirement changes have eventually floundered and these things have passed. So will it be enough? Uh, it's hard to tell. There will definitely be strikes and protests. I mean, as you, as you said, uh, you know, the unions will announce something tonight, but and they'll probably last for, for some time. But it's it's hard to tell if that will really change, uh, change the, the, the proposal that was put out today. Can France afford not to do this, Alan? Is this something that it has to do? I, you look at the pension benefits that, that are achievable in France, they look relatively high. If you look at the pension age, it looks relatively low. France clearly needs to reform this. Does it have any choice but to do this? If you talk to most economists, including at least sort of center-left ones, maybe not the furthest left ones, uh, the, their answer will be like, yes, it has to do this. But their answer might not be they have France has to do this right now. Um, there will be deficits in the in the retirement system in coming years, but at the moment, for the next few years, there's no sort of crisis that needs to be met. And so one question is, can you reform France or any country, really, effectively, if there's no sort of proximate crisis that really focuses people's minds and make them uh, and make them agree to it. Um, so the answer to your question is yes, they do eventually have to do this. Do they have to do it now? That's a little harder to answer. I mean, it's it's always going to hurt those who are 60 if you look at it that way too. Um, politically, what's the situation like politically for Macron? Does he have support there? How how is he lobbying different factions of his government? The main thing that they're doing is trying to get um, the French party that's called the Republicans, not to be confused with the American Republicans, but they're sort of a center-right, middle-right party uh, that used to be the dominant party in France, actually, and now they've been reduced to you know, 60-odd seats in parliament. But uh, Macron is short of a majority, of an outright majority in parliament. And if he wants to actually be able to, be able to pass this in Parliament, and I'll come to a, another way of doing it, but in a minute. But if he wants to be able to pass it, he needs help. So he needs some other party uh, to join with him, and the most likely is the Republicans. They've always been for increasing the retirement age for this sort of retirement form of the reform of the type that he's putting in. And the French government or the Macron's government agreed to some of their demands, which were, for example, raising their retirement age more gradually than they'd been originally planning. Um, so they're the most likely to, to, to come to his aid and vote for this, um, even if they don't, though. So if they do, great. He has a majority in, parla- in the lower house of parliament. It passes. It doesn't really matter. The way the, the French parliamentary system is set up, it doesn't really matter what happens in the Senate. If it passes in the lower house, that's what that's what matters. Um, but even if they don't, even if no one except, uh, decides to go with him, he can actually pass this by decree. Um, and that's always a little bit contentious in France, but it is, it is doable. Um, and I don't think it would actually make much of a difference in terms of the sort of the number of people protesting in the street. They're going to protest anyway, whether it's passed by vote or by decree. Are the French people behind pension reform or no. are they likely to support the unions <laughs> if they are going to protest? Because that will have an impact on the longevity of any potential strike, I assume. 
Yes, um, and the answer is no, they're not behind pension reform, certainly not at the moment. Uh, you have uh, recent polls that have put the support for keeping the uh, – um, retirement age at 62, I think it was 47% wanted to keep their retirement age at 62, uh, and 25% said they wanted to see their retirement age lowered. So that's a not, not raised. <laughs> but uh, but the, the, that's, that's an opinion poll, right? It's not mm-hmm. the same thing as, okay, deep in your heart, what do you really believe? It's that 45% number that's, that's maybe a little bit more uh, important if that number starts to go down. In other words, if, if more French people and you get close to uh, 50% or a slight majority who are like, okay, yeah, maybe we should raise the retirement age, the protest will eventually dissipate. Everything will be fine. If that number, if the number of French people who support the, the government program that they've just put out there today never gets above 30, 35%, that's usually the tipping point where they'll eventually have to withdraw it. Um, but it's, you know, and again, you sort of have to take an average of polls over time to really get a sense of that. But basically, if you don't see the, it's unpopular for the moment, if you don't see that unpopularity decreasing or to reverse that, the popularity increasing, then this will eventually have to be withdrawn. Mm-hmm. But if you do see that popularity increasing, yeah. even if it's only gradual and even if it remains a minority, then probably it'll it'll be fine. Alan, thank you so much. We super appreciate it. Uh, Paris Bureau Chief Alan Katz joining us there. Bananas. I just say banana. Literally, who thinks that they can actually retire? Like, I don't understand anymore. Like, everything Alex is, is, so- is There's a certain amount of shock in Alex's life at the moment. I think there's a dawning realization that, that retirement is not an option. I always knew that. I'm just crazed by the people who don't know that. If I lived in point. France, I would want to retire. I guess I don't want to. There's more to say. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. So after weeks of strikes here in the UK, the UK government today introduced legislation that will require a minimum service standard from a range of government-supported activities, uh, from the health service uh, to transport networks. Uh, The government is basically going to utilise this bill uh, to force the arrangements. Um, We're talking about ambulance workers here, uh, fire staff, firemen and women, uh, rail services. Uh, There is going to be a public consultation on all of this. Government ministers, led by Grant Shapps today, out basically saying that this is not a watering down of workers' rights to strike, but just a requirement for for the economy to keep functioning. Um, our strike supporter, Eamon Farhat, joining us now with the latest on this. Eamon, is this going to be in any way a successful strategy by the government? I mean, it's interesting because this week we are having lots of talks with different unions to try and resolve disputes. At the same time, we're also having this legislation come into play. You know, some trade union leaders have told me that, you know, this, if anything, is going to actually prolong these strikes and prolong these disputes because, you know, a lot of these workers are seeing this as an attack on their, you know, their fundamental rights. At the same time, you know, the government is saying that they need to be able to be protecting people's lives when it comes to health strikes and also, you know, people getting to work with the rail strikes. So actually, this is kind of a, a way of, pleasing everyone. But I think, you know, to help us get to a resolution, this really is a bit of a red herring. Well, right, because I was going to say, how do you force people to work and then also appreciate a strike and meet demands? Like, I don't, that like, those two things don't make sense to me. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing is it's you can't, you know, the, the whole thing is with, withdrawing your labor is a way of trying to bargain and get these pay rises and get these conditions. Um, interestingly, this week, you know, we did have a meeting today where many different trade unions came together and people thought they were going to announce some quarterly strike, strike action and they didn't. You know, they did just say that they were opposed to this legislation, but there's been no new strike dates announced, probably because there are talks going on throughout the week with the, the health unions and specifically the rail unions. So what talks are happening but in the background. Where the are teachers, we yeah, we're going to have... We're probably going to be having some news on that coming hopefully tomorrow morning um, from one of the unions who will be announcing the results of their ballot. You know, the thing with teachers is kind of the sleeping giant, I think, because there are, you know, something like half a million teachers that are represented by two different unions who are both, both voting this week on potentially taking a national strike action. So they could be all taken out at once. So it could be a huge, huge thing that will put pressure on the government. Um, At the same time, where are actual talks? Like, how are they going? Like, I appreciate that the unions are really not going to like this law that they're going to try and pass. So how does that affect the actual conversations? Yeah, I mean, on the the health side, you know, the government is still really not trying to budge on this idea of giving any kind of a pay rise this year. And it's already trying to talk about next year to try and push the ball forward. Um, That being said, there is some indication that, you know, the, the health department, is willing to give this kind of um, you know one-time bonus, and it's maybe the treasury who are pushing back on that. You know, these are all kind of things coming out of meetings. Um, but there is definitely more movement on the health side, and there is a bit, a little bit more positivity coming out from some of the health unions. On the rail side, you know, there are talks ongoing. Talks ongoing is a very positive thing because for six months we had almost no talks ongoing. So at least they're talking, and it does seem like the government is taking a bit more of an active you know part in these talks than they did in the past. Amy, we're starting to see the UK labour market softening and softening fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. Amazon announcing big closures today. Uh, you're hearing from some of the big recruitment firms talking about a, a labour market that is softening significantly. Is that something that the government is almost waiting for? They're, they're waiting for the labour market to ease up. They're waiting for inflation to come down uh, in order to strengthen their hand. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. It does seem sometimes that the government is trying to play a bit of a waiting game. I mean, you know, these strikes, for the rail strikes, it's almost six months since we first had them hitting our, our trains. The health is going to be, you know, a few months as well. So they may be trying to wait it out, you know, not just for public support to kind of drop and things to get a bit normalized and also for there to be a bit less pressure on those vacancies because, you know, vacancies have been very high. And as you said, they're starting to drop down a little bit. So maybe that would just kind of give them a bit of breathing room to try and get a bit of a better pay deal. So, uh, Guy, does this mean that you will be on the cable next week or you won't be or you don't know? So I, I, my understanding at the moment, well, there's a kind of two-week window in which they have to announce the train strike. Okay. So I think, I think we're good to go for this week. I think we're yeah. good, good, good for next week. Then, we just need I think it's whilst talks are, yeah, whilst Sorry, talks are ongoing, they don't announce strikes. So whilst talks are ongoing this week, we should be in the clear. And that's what's kind of keeping us safe at this part of January. You know, the postal votes, there's, there's not going to be much strikes yeah. because they have talks, the rail as well. So for the time being, it's mostly the health this month. Eamon, we always appreciate your updates. Thank you very much indeed. Keep, continue to keep us updated. Thank you very much indeed. Eamon Fire. this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable of Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. So if you were holding your breath yesterday for a successful Virgin Orbit launch, you were very much disappointed. That stock is down about 10%. It was down 20%. Um, this was the first launch out of the UK, and it failed to reach orbit. And we don't really know why. But this would have been a really big deal for the UK. It would have been a really big deal for Virgin Orbit that's really bleeding money. So we want to dig into this a little bit more with Ed Ludlow. He joins me now in the studio. How do we not know what happened? I I think they're just kind of 
doing the 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 math, doing the research, the calculations. So basically, the plane took off. The plane takes off from Southwest England, Cornwall, near Newquay. It kind of does a big arc, climbs to altitude over the Irish Sea, and then at thirty five thousand feet, it, it for one of a better descriptor, it's like a fighter jet dropping a, a, a missile, right, or or a rocket. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this big space rocket is underneath the wing of a Boeing seven four seven. It detaches, ignites, and then. Whoosh, Sorry for the sound effects. No, no, but like climbs mm-hmm. through Earth's atmosphere, breaches that boundary and goes into space. That was a success. In fact, it gets to the point where it's traveling at 11,000 miles an hour. And just like many other rockets, like the kind of that the SpaceX or Blue Origin have developed, it separates into two stages. That first stage, the actual boost that got it to where it was, falls away back to down, down to Earth. The smaller portion, the second stage ignites. And it's at that point that something goes wrong. And ultimately, the business story here is... It did not deploy its payload. In other words, the satellites that Virgin Orbit were carrying for customers weren't successfully placed into it to their orbital path, and that ain't good. Can Virgin Orbit afford this? These very kinds of failures. Oh, very good question. I mean, um, let's be honest about it. The three of us were hoping to speak to the CEO Dan Hart right at eleven thirty, and. Uh, they cancelled. So that's one question we would have asked. In the most recent quarterly earnings, third quarter 2022, they finished the quarter with about $70 million uh, on their balance sheet. But a year before that, they had almost $200 million. So they're burning through cash. They've just started being meaningfully revenue generating, but they've only done six launches. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, like, can they book revenue? I've asked, by the way, can they book revenue on a on a launch or satellites that were never deployed? That's a really interesting question. And can they? I don't know. I don't they know. haven't answered yet. <laughs> so, 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 so the idea is there's the plane and then there's a satellite. And yeah. The plane goes up and yeah. it puts the satellite into space. And yeah. then the satellite for another company sits in space and then the company can yeah, use so, that so satellite, et cetera. Virgin Orbit is and the it, launch it's, provider. It's when they get paid that is the question. Yeah, I, I mean, like th- this is a bigger picture uh, story, but but what Virgin Orbit are doing is rather than a sort of lateral launch mechanism like SpaceX, where you launch from a launch pad straight up into the sky, they have found another mechanism to deliver payload to orbit. And it's probably slightly lower cost because mm-hmm. your fixed costs are the jet fuel and operating the, the, the airplane. And then also the cost of getting the rocket from the moment it drops from the wing of the 747 into orbit. That's less fuel because you're not doing it from right. the ground, right? Um, it's not reusable like like a SpaceX mm-hmm. uh, Falcon 9 uh, booster is. But um, this was supposed to be a big moment for the UK. And, you know, I'm sorry, Guy. I'm sorry that this didn't put the UK on the map um, as, as kind of the dawn of the UK space well, launch it's, age. It's put it on the map for maybe the wrong reasons. It, was this a, it, do we know this was a UK problem? Well, it's probably the weather. I'm just saying. No, no I, kidding, we I don't we know. don't know what the malfunction was. We don't know the I have technical to say it was reason. Very windy last night. Mm, and quite well, windy. no, because because the, the plane, plane successfully got to thirty five thousand feet. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just unfortunate. This is the sixth launch that Virgin Orbit have done. The first was a failure. Their their inaugural debut from the Mojave Desert. This was the first from the UK. Um, and many, many, many space launch company startups, etc., have failed on their first attempt. But then after that first initial failure, what we see SpaceX in particular, obviously, is is continued and ongoing over and over again success. So this is kind of a, a blip in the road. So what do you think that Virgin Orbit has to do now? Like, how long until, I, I don't know, like, can they re- relaunch quickly? How long do they have until they're really bleeding money, even though there already are? Like, what, what happens? I, I don't have I don't have the answer. I think, unfortunately, they've launched at a pretty irregular cadence. 
Um, the cash burn has been quick and severe. There was a brief uh, stay of the cash burn between the second and third quarters. Why? They didn't do anything in that time period. So I've asked all these questions, guys, and I really hope we do get Dan Hart, the CEO, on, on either the TV or radio show because you can't take away from the positive, which is that they have done something mm-hmm. to put a UK launch on the map. They do have more planned. Uh What's worrying is they're not really talking about how much of a setback this is. I would say that the shares have paired their losses, right? We're down 12%. We were down in excess of 20%, but investors clearly not happy. But again, this is an industry where there's a lot of froth in the publicly Mm -hmm. traded companies and expectations were really high. Where is the money in space? Is it in... Is it in rocket launches? Is it going to be in rocket launches? Or is it building the stuff that the rockets launch? Because the UK has a has a fairly big footprint when it comes to smaller satellites. Yeah, it's not in launch. You know, and and what's so fascinating about the economics of commercial space is that Elon Musk has talked pretty openly about this, right? SpaceX dominates more than two-thirds of all the payload that's sent from Earth into space, including all private and public sector launches, including the Chinese. And he even says that SpaceX's launch business, the amount of revenue generated, tops out at $3 billion a year just for that one single biggest player. There isn't that much to go around, mm-hmm. right? And and so the money, the future, the potential, actually if you look there are you know, Morgan Stanley does an analysis of this, Space Angels or Space Capital, various VC firms. The money's not even just in the satellites, it's in the data that the mm-hmm. satellites are generating, Starlink providing satellite-based internet. Think about farming here on Earth and what you can learn about the movement of herds or crop placement from the photo images and, and or scans. Or like literally from. inclement weather. Right. Like how, how quickly can you predict? Alex's eyes just lit up because she and I did a whole we did. program we did a on whole this issue. On this. And, and, and this was part of it. But that's where the money's at, right? It's about what can space give you access to? And largely in the first instance, it's connectivity. Tourism is a part of that and there are companies working on that and the further afield uh, if elon musk is successful it's about you know human interplanetary travel and interplanetary uh mining of materials which is jeff bezos's uh vision space space would you guys go into space would no. you go to mars yeah. no no i definitely would not would guy you? in a heartbeat really no, my husband's the same way no way i would freak out. I like my life in California. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to stay here and work till I'm 71. That's what I'm doing. Ed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. See Ed Ludlow <laughs> joining us there. All right. Uh, coming up, we're going to go back to the U.S. markets. We had Fed Chair Jay Powell speak in Stockholm today. Um, he didn't really move the needle. However, how markets are interpreting what Jay Powell did or didn't say is also quite interesting. Mike McKee will be here. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get a quick snapshot here of markets. They're doing nothing. Uh, stocks, small moves. They're right around uh, 39, about 38.93 right now, but not a lot of movement happening. We talked about the bond market selling off there. You got yields up by about 10 basis points uh, on the back end. Um, you did have a couple fun notes out. I'll point this out. Um, JP Morgan had a note out that said, if you wind up have a cooler cooler than inflation read on Thursday, you could see a lot more juice in the bear market rally because everyone's positioned in the same kind of way. And you have to unwind some bearish positions if you wind up seeing a cooler inflation print and you could see as much as a 2% rise on the S&P. But we still have like two days before that. So a lot can happen uh, in the meantime. 
some idiosyncratic stories. Coinbase is cutting about a thousand workers. Uh, they're doing a lot of restructuring. Bed Bath and Beyond's number is not great, but uh, okay, the stock is up. Why not? Um, if you're restructuring, the market seems to like it. Uh, TSMC uh, had a disappointing forecast for chip demand. Um, so those are kind of some of the stories that are kicking around today as we really wait for direction. Which, let's be honest, it's going to come on Thursday. Joining us here in studio is Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Um, Mike. When it comes to what we heard from Powell today, the markets were lower, the equity markets were lower heading into it, and then they kind of rallied and now are flat. What, what is the reaction function of the market based on Powell not actually saying anything? Yeah, well, that's the reaction function. Everybody, Say nothing, get a rally. Everybody wants <laughs> guidance when they don't get it. I mean, you put on a little bit of a position, and then when you don't get it, uh, you, know, you react to that and take it off. Uh, we'll go through that a lot between now and uh, February 1st when the next uh, meeting results are announced. Uh, we'll keep going through that. As long as uh, there are Fed speakers out there, uh, there will always be somebody who's trying to front run them a little bit. Mike, the Fed speaker at the moment is pretty unequivocal. I, daily yesterday, Bostic, you've got a few speakers today. The message is we are going to raise rates, probably to north of 5%, and then leave them there. Yet still, to Alex's point, the market is not listening. If Powell had said that, would that have been different? I'm just no, kind of wondering what. He said that. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. But and, if he said it again, would it be different? I. I I don't think so. Um, we talked about this a little earlier. The idea that there's two different camps. There's a camp that thinks that rates have to be cut because inflation's going to go away, and there's a camp that thinks that the Fed's raised rates too high, and we're going to have a recession, so rates have to be cut. And uh, you know, those two are kind of fundamentally opposed to each other, but they're both in the markets now. Today, we saw a large uh, steepening of the yield curve. It's it's still inverted, but steepened a lot. But people are saying that's basically because we've got auctions coming up and you got to have a, a premium to uh, sell your bonds these days. So there's a lot of th- cross currents going on. I think everybody in the markets basically understands that nothing much has changed with the Fed, but we do have uh, these initial knee-jerk reactions, and I'm sure we'll get one at 8.30 on uh, Eastern Time on Thursday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the longer-term view, the Fed's not changing its view at this point, so I don't know that the markets should change theirs. No, but Michelle Bowman, right? She was talking earlier. Mickey Bowman a- saying the same thing that Raphael Bostic said yesterday. Yep. And Mary a lot Daly more work said. to do, going to hold rates at a peak for a long period of time. Um, so... What do you think we're going to – I know we're front-running this preview, but I really – how fast do you think inflation can actually slow? Like, Do you think we're going to get a good read on that on Thursday? Well, good read. I mean, we get one month's read, and we've had two months of declining inflation that were – where it fell, the the rate of uh, increase fell more than anticipated. So we could see that again. Obviously, headline is very much influenced by energy, and energy prices have more or less been going down. And if that continues, that's going to take more off the top of that. Uh, Then you have the housing question. Uh, Because of the way the government calculates housing prices in the CPI, it takes a long time for that to fall, even though prices are falling. And we're seeing prices falling in private measures, and the Fed knows that. So 
you got to kind of look beyond that part of it as well. The CPI X housing has become a, a favorite index on Wall Street. And then, it, you know, it really comes down to what are services prices doing? We're seeing input prices fall and supply chain issues heal. So things are getting better on the good side. But do, uh, do service industry prices keep going down? And how much is that influenced by wages? Those are the questions yet to be answered. The recent data has has given the market this idea that the soft landing is achievable, i.e. we bring inflation down in the United States without delivering too much economic damage. But here's my question on the back of that. If a soft landing is achievable, is the Fed going to need to cut rates? Well, the Fed never really can say there's a soft landing because the economy is always evolving. Okay, but I mean, but let's say inflation comes down. Inflation comes down. And, and, economic, and, and, and the economy is not dinged up that much. Does that imply that the U.S. economy can tolerate those higher rates and still deliver a reasonable economic outcome? Yeah, I get what you're asking, and it sort of folds into a question that I think is going to be the next big question once we kind of get through this raising cycle and we see inflation coming down, and that is, what is the economy going to be afterwards? Is it going to be the new normal? Is it going to be the old normal? Is it going to be a new, new normal? Uh, you had Larry Summers going into the pandemic talking quite a bit about secular stagnation. Now he says it's not going to happen. Uh, so... One, we don't know whether it's going to be a high uh, inflation, high interest rate environment or go back to the old low interest rates, low uh, inflation environment. And that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch going forward. And the Fed is just basically going to have to react. They would like to have interest rates higher, maybe not as high as they are now, but somewhere in the 3 to 4% range, because then if you do have a recession, you have a tool to use uh, where you can't really cut when you're at zero. So we'll see. It's, it's just going to depend on how it plays out. I mean, the whole psychology worldwide, or at least in, in the Western world, going into the pandemic was nobody can raise prices because there's global competition. Mm -hmm. And now there's much less global competition. So does that mean companies can still raise prices or are we all still holding our fingers over the Amazon button and uh, willing to go there instead of paying uh, elevated prices? Also, I mean, all of us are very scarred from the pandemic in different ways. And I have to think that companies and CEOs are going to be equally as scarred in terms of how they source their supply, how they treat and deal with their workers, how they deal with inventory, whether that's labor hoarding or just more productivity and more, say, technology, or whether it's uh, onshoring and reshoring. And I don't I don't know when we get a clear outlook of that, because that's going to affect everything from growth and inflation. I think we're at a, a tipping point, an inflection point in the global economy, and it's particularly true uh, for the U.S., the EU, and for the U.K., uh, for different reasons slightly in each of those uh, regions. But things are going to be different, and people don't know how they're going to work out. How many people are coming yeah. back to the office? Do we need all the office buildings we have? That's just one question among uh, many. Uh, this pandemic may have changed things significantly for a long time to come. So it makes it a little bit harder to do uh, monetary policy. And it's interesting, the conference at the Riksbank today, where Jay Powell was speaking, and they were talking about central bank independence. And uh, basically, uh, they all, all of the central bankers there said, we need to be flexible. Uh, independence helps because we can react to what's happening, but we need to stick to our knitting, stick to our mandates, uh, which are, you know, most places just control inflation. And so how the economy changes may not 
change yep. their views much mm -hmm. or their their what they do much, but it will probably change how they look at things. Mike, always a pleasure. Obviously, you'll be on with the rest of the week for us as well. Um, this is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So one of the really big pension funds that invests billions of dollars in the United States is CalPERS. This is the California Pension Fund. Uh, it is the public employee's retirement system, uh, hence CalPERS. Uh, and what it's announced today is that it's going to change, at the margin maybe, the way that it invests, particularly into private equity. It's going to seek out newer, more innovative, uh, maybe female-backed, maybe minority-backed private equity funds and, and invest in them. Now, now part of this clearly is a, a desire to have a more diverse system, but it also is a plan to basically boost returns uh, over the long term. So Shinali Basak, uh, Alex and I all spoke a little earlier to the Calpa CIO, uh, Nicole Musico, to get her take on what they're trying to do. We've been very fortunate to see tremendous data come out over a number of years that there's an entire ecosystem of these up-and-coming emerging managers, often many of which are run by diverse or un, uh, underfunded minorities, if you will, and they are absolutely outperforming or at best competing uh, very, very well against their peers. And so we see this as this amazing ecosystem that's been very untapped and very undercapitalized by most of the long-term uh, patient investors. How does it fall in also to kind of the larger perspective here at CalPERS? You made a lot of news when you came out last year and kind of announced your strategy to the board of CalPERS, largest pension in the United States, and this idea that you can do more on your own. You could bypass the larger managers. Yeah, I think bypassing the larger managers is probably a bit of a stretch. I think that it's extremely important for us to continue to have very strong strategic partnerships with the larger managers. We need that in order to hit our strategic asset allocation. We need that to build in-house capabilities, etc. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be constantly seeking out pockets of excess return. I think this whole initiative uh, in, in its entirety is not only about excess, excess returns, but it's also precisely to give us the ability to start having some knowledge transfer. It really fosters uh, a culture of entrepreneurialism. And so I'm really excited about not only the excess returns that we're seeking, but the benefits that it'll have for our team as we evolve into being able to do more and more alongside strategic partners and in addition in the future on our own. Nicole, hi, it's Alex uh, here in New York. Hi. Nicole, to that point, talk about the private market versus public market returns as pension funds are just really struggling to get a solid, the, the kind the kind of returns that they really need. Yeah, I think for for CalPERS, we were a bit late to the game, or maybe we took a pause. I reviewed that during our last board meeting, where we really had an era of almost 10 years, where we had stepped out of the private market space. We're in catch-up mode. We've been doing a good job in the last number of years before I arrived on the scene. But now our focus is making sure we're looking at the entire ecosystem of private markets, from private equity, infrastructure, real estate, private credit, and really looking to build up our own in-house expertise, looking to build out strategic partnerships, and then eventually growing into our own so that we can start doing uh, co-investing alongside partners or on our own. Um, Nicole, there's been a lot of concern about how private equity sort of manages uh, whatever's coming in the next few years in terms of markets, right? Like maybe that's kind of leverage never really been tested in a massive downturn. How do you think about that when you look at markets on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Yeah, we've been fortunate that we've been very focused on the, the quality of the partners that we've been investing in. We're, uh, we're confident that we're well positioned from a liquidity perspective. We ourselves have a lot of dry powder. Our partners have been on fundraising sprees the last number of years, and so there's a lot of dry powder in the system, and so we're still very confident about the opportunity within private markets in general and specifically within private equity. But we are looking for new pockets for excess returns, which is precisely why we think this initiative to commit a billion dollars to these emerging investment managers, many of which are diverse. We think that there's tremendous opportunity for us to be generating excess return in that ecosystem. That was Nicole Musico, uh, Calper's CIO, joining us. Um, the question that really becomes for these big guys that still have to guarantee 7% return every year is what happens in a downturn? If there's so much money flowing into hedge funds and private equity, for example, to get that kind of return, if there's a big downshift or if there are bubbles that pop, what happens? That kind of money has never been tested in a downturn. Private equity has, but not the kind of money that we're seeing now. So it's a really interesting conversation that definitely is going to unfold. But nonetheless, I'm making some big strides there in a small, in, in, in smaller ways to diversify. All right, coming up, we're going to talk to ConAgra. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So, Guy, do you know what a Slim Jim is? This guy there. He's going to be not there. He's not there. It's okay. A Slim Jim is basically a beef stick. So it's one of the most popular things here in the U.S. And it's a brand that's owned by ConAgra. And ConAgra has tons of brands from frozen food dinners to Natural Balance, which is like non-buttery butter and made with olive oil, for example. Um, they have tons of brands. So they have a really good window into what's happening with inflation and then what's happening with the consumer as well. So Guy and I caught up with the CEO, Sean Connolly. The stock is right around a 52-week high. They had solid earnings. Um, they've been trying to really boost their margins. And here's part of this conversation. The big shift occurred at the beginning of the pandemic when all this away from home eating shifted to in-home eating. And in particular, you had younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, starting to learn how to cook for the first time. Mm -hmm. Well, that in-home eating has proven to be very sticky. Why is it sticky? Because costs are higher and it's still much more affordable to eat at home than it is to eat away from home. So we're seeing strength across the board. Our frozen meals business, which is super convenient if you're working from home for lunch, and our, your, our snack business, because you're getting a lot your entertainment still from home and now that you know there's been inflation and things are more expensive it's just a better value to continue to eat at home so it's really been strength across the board so then let's get to the inflation part um, how has inflation peaked for you is it coming down well it's been incredibly uh, long this this wave of inflation and we've had actually multiple waves of inflation it's beginning to moderate I don't think we can say the sun has set on it yet we are still forecasting inflation in the back half of our fiscal year which we are in now uh, but it's beginning to come down we're seeing uh, you know some variability in different commodities some are lower than others but it's been incredibly persistent and that's really been kind of our mantra is to persevere through this super cycle of inflation and we're beginning to come through the other side right now Sean, good morning. It's Guy. Um, Hi, Guy. Really appreciate you joining us. Do you think, though, that we are going into a different environment? As you say, we're, we're coming through uh, a, a big bounce in inflation. How long does that last? Are we going to see a permanent effect of it? What has changed over the last few years that you're thinking about when you think about your portfolio of brands? 
Well, we're not calling for any real material broad-based deflation. As I said, we are still forecasting some inflation, but the good news is the magnitude of the inflation is moderating, and that's a good thing. Yep. But what we see as persisting in terms of the last few years and the, the change in consumer behaviors is we think there will be some stickiness to the elevated level of at-home eating that was really caused early on by the pandemic because younger consumers in particular have found out they can stretch their household balance sheets much farther farther if they spend more of their food dollars at home and more of their eating occasions at home because it's a simply it's a it's a superior relative value to eating out and that's one of the things that's helping food companies like ConAgra navigate inflation mm -hmm. right now is that consumer response to the inflation justified pricing that companies have taken has been fairly muted overall how do you protect your margins going forward if your top line slows or stops growing what's your easy lever well it We've been in margin recovery mode because the mechanics of these inflation cycles is when you get hit with inflation, there's a lag before your pricing actions take effect. And during that lag period, you have margin compression. <clears throat> so our sole focus has been on margin recovery. And you saw in our quarter last week, we had about 300 basis points of year-on-year -year margin recovery. The way we continue to maintain strong margins from here and even grow is focused on productivity, margin accretive innovation, and just efficient management of all of our assets, yep. and that's what we're calling for. Sean, that's going to help you in the middle of the P&L. So, but but let's talk about the sort of the, at the top of the P at the top of the P&L. What's how how do you innovate to drive top line? Premiumization is the answer. Uh, if you look at our portfolio today compared to eight years ago, what you'll see is, and we call it the good, better, best continuum, <clears throat> more and more of our products have become more premiumized products. So if you look at one of our largest brands, Birdseye, our sole focus when it comes to innovation on Birdseye is premiumization. Yes, if you want a box of peas, we will sell you that. But our bigger focus is on value-added innovation. So for example, last year, one of our most successful innovations was in Birdseye. And oddly, it was an innovation idea we got out of the sports pub uh, arena, and it was buffalo cauliflower wings. Chicken wings have been in sports mm. pubs forever, but in the last few years, the world's gone cauliflower, including these buffalo cauliflower wings that we discovered <laughs> that were pretty cool. We fast adapted it to our products, and it was one of our most successful innovations. That's a, an example of a premium premium innovation, mm -hmm. the consumer gets more value out of it, we charge a bit more for it, it's got mar it's, and it's margin accretive. So to, to that point on the short term though, um, to enhance your margins or just recover your margins or protect them, can you raise prices and, and how do you do that strategically? We've taken multiple waves of price increases, all, are they sticky? all justified by inflation. Mm -hmm. So we don't take price increases to increase our margins. We take price increases to recover our margins so that we can continue to invest in innovation. It has been sticky. The consumer response to it has been muted. And overall, you know, as you can see in our results last week, it's been quite successful. I'm just wondering how sticky a buffalo cauliflower wing would be. Anyway, Sounds that's awesome. a whole different discussion. I totally eat that. Give them but, a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, so what kind of inflation do you think we're going to be looking at? As, as economists try and plug in numbers and work out kind of what they're going to be seeing over the next few years, what can you tell them? What do you think we're going to be, we're going to be seeing over the next few years? I, I know inflation has been super high. I know it's coming down. But how far do you think it comes down, Sean? Well, I'm not going to advise the global economists, but what I, what I will say is that in the food space, typical inflation year on year is 2 to 3%. 
you know, that is not where we've been. Last year, in the back half of our year, we were north of 15%. Uh, this year, you know, it's just, it's still another double digit year of inflation on top of that massive base year. So we're not calling for a return to that level of historic inflation anytime soon. We are seeing it moderate. And what we do need to do to make sure we can continue to navigate it is make sure that our productivity programs in our manufacturing facilities get back to historic levels. Because keep in mind, during COVID, everybody's productivity took a hit because we were all focused on providing an essential service, which is getting food out of the mm -hmm. plants so that we could have food on the shelves when people needed it at home. And that came with a, the exp some expense in the efficiency area. So there was some friction there. John Connolly, the CEO and president of Conagra Brands. They own Birdseye. Um, ironically, I'm really sorry. I missed the, the bit of the conversation that front of that. Uh, it had something to do with peas, but anyway, <laughs> different conversation. Um, all I want now, though, is a fish figure sandwich, Alex. Uh, all I want, I could, I could go for a burger, actually. Ooh. Even if it's microwave, that sounds good, too. Anyway, we're listening to The Cable. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.